BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I love doing bonus episodes where there's just us hanging out and I'm answering listener questions. Today, we're talking about toddlers and throwing, consequences, imaginary friends, and playing with Legos. So... If you enjoy this episode, please go and subscribe. If you haven't already, rate and give it a review. And of course, if you want more listener Q&A, more answers to questions, more additional episodes, more newsletters, subscribe to draliza.bulletin.com so that I can have live Q&As in conversation with all of you. Okay. The first listener question is, my child is almost two years old and is throwing toys that he shouldn't. Some things that are soft, like balls, but sometimes it's things that are hard, like a train he shouldn't throw. He seems to know that he can't throw it. Sometimes I tell him not to throw it and then he just throws more. I tell him that he could hurt someone, but he continues to do it. Does he know the difference? And what should I do? Should I just not allow throwing in the house at all? Okay, you are definitely not alone with the throwers. So we're talking about toddlers throwing things. So when it comes to potentially dangerous things, it's not the time to do the pause and reflect. You just need to make sure that everybody's safe. So if your toddler is throwing something dangerous, grab it, put it out of reach and explain. We can't throw trains, trains break, trains can hurt you know, whatever it is that's happening. So I'm going to put it away right now. You can throw these and then hand the bin of soft toys, plush stuffed animals, anything you feel comfortable with. Or you can say, we can throw balls outside and you can go outside if that's a possibility for you and throw a ball. So you're not just saying no, you're saying no to that dangerous throwing and yes to throwing things that are acceptable That way you don't have to just disappoint. The other thing is if your child then tantrums afterwards or just is really hell-bent on throwing only the things that are hard, then you know they're just not ready for it yet. And it's just not the time for them. So try to look for signs and cues if they do seem to be able to play for a little bit of time. Let's say they're playing with hard blocks and they seem to be doing okay. And then something happens after a little while where they want your attention or they're just kind of curious or they have a sibling they're trying to get a little bit aggressive with, see what's prompting the throwing. If it's about attention, then no. Okay. 
This is not an activity they can have independent play with. I'm going to do it with them and focus, or we're going to just keep those things away until I have the time to do that. If it's because it's just not developmentally appropriate yet for them, they're just not capable of doing it yet. You set aside the trains and you think, you know what, we'll bring those out in a few months. In terms of doing something because you know that you're not supposed to, but you want the attention, sometimes we inadvertently kind of give more attention to the behaviors that we don't want to see. And so we sort of lock eyes, cock our heads, maybe even say, no, 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 you know better. Whatever that is, it's a little bit of a game. It's a little bit fun. It's a little bit interesting. And it sure can be because it's getting attention. You also might be looking at your phone and kind of reading the paper or doing whatever. And then your child knows, I know what's going to get some attention. You might be holding your other child. So there are many different reasons why this is happening. You can figure all of those out after you deal with the immediate danger of throwing something. When it comes to throwing soft objects, then I would encourage you to think about what can you tolerate? Because of course, kids are going to want to throw. If it's okay with you to throw soft things, it's certainly not a problem. They can learn the difference between hard and soft, safe and unsafe. You can even point to things that are soft to throw and show them. You can take a bin out or a trash can and throw them in the trash can if you're averse to having a mess, although it's sometimes easier to just allow the throwing and then, you know, just say where they can throw. So you can throw below my knees or you can throw in this corner, or again, you can throw into this bin. So you're really focused on telling your child what they can do or saying, I see you want to throw, we can't throw in the house, but we can go outside and throw and then take them outside. If it's unrealistic to take them outside, then let them know when they can do it and then don't forget to follow through. Here's a question I get a lot. The question is, when my child misbehaves, if they have an attachment to a teddy bear that they love, is it okay for me to take it away? It's the only thing that seems to get them to stop doing things I don't want them to do. I totally understand the impulse to want to take away a toy because you're just so frustrated and you want a consequence. And it makes sense that you'd want to take away something that means something to your child because you really want them to feel the consequence. Unfortunately, taking away what is presumably a transitional object, meaning it is there to help your child experience comfort and safety without you, but not on their own. So it's that transition between you doing everything to support them and their own selves being able to do that. That transitional object, a lovey, a teddy bear, anything that you you kind of recognize when you've got a kid who has one, that's their comfort. And if you take that away, it's a really big blow. And a child is bound to experience it is really out of proportion to the quote unquote crime. So for them, it's just a loss. And that loss of this thing that helps them keep emotionally stable, self-regulated, comfortable, is going to put them in a stress response. That's when you go into that red brain we've talked about on so many episodes. You go into fight, flight, or freeze. And what happens? You can't think. 
You don't really understand that there was a consequence because you did something. All you're doing is trying to survive the blow of losing this really important security object. So instead, allow your child to use that security object to feel comforted when they've acted out, you know, when they're happy, when they're tired, whatever feelings they have, so that they learn that they have ways to cope and separate it and keep it kind of off limits from consequences. If your child can cling to her teddy bear, she's going to be more likely to be able to handle the strong feelings that she has when she misbehaves, like the guilt, like the shame. And if she doesn't have this security object, she's going to have a bigger struggle developing self-regulation over time. Additionally, keep in mind, it doesn't make sense. If you want to have a consequence be to take something away, it needs to have something to do with the, I'm sorry, I keep calling it crime. That's kind of loaded, but it does need to have to do with that crime, so to speak, because Otherwise, it just doesn't translate. It makes sense if you throw a train that you are going to have the train taken away. That makes sense because it's a natural consequence. If you take the teddy bear away, it doesn't have anything to do with what happened. And it just serves to close your child's brain off from learning and to go into that stress response that focuses on the immediate need of getting through the devastating experience of losing that security object. Hi, Dr. Aliza. You talk a lot about figuring out how to stay calm, but I can't figure out how to get myself calm when I'm feeling pushed. Do you have any tips? I totally understand. I talk so much about finding your own source of self-regulation before you respond to your child's behaviors, needs, wants, emotions, because of course, They need us to co-regulate. They need to borrow our calm. Well, how can they borrow our calm if we don't know how to get calm? So one thing that is a really good exercise everybody can do, sit down and ask yourself the following questions. Basically, it's a self-assessment on our own triggers. So think about the behaviors that you typically go to in yourself when your child experiences behavior challenges, when your child acts out, where do you go to? So just reflect and maybe write down a list of things in your own history that happened when that behavior came up. So for example, think about if your child talks back and it just turns you into that, you know, you go into your red brain, you are so physically, like you can feel the anger in your hands and your fists and, you know, your tightness in your face, your heart rate, you're just feeling like, uh. and now you've had a kid who said something disrespectful, you're dysregulated. That's a trigger. Something about your child's disrespect was not just in the moment that it's upsetting you, but it comes from a long history of how you feel about respect. 
So maybe it sets off memories from when you were disrespectful to your parents and how they dealt with it. Maybe they had a lot of rage when you were disrespectful and it was not tolerated. And now you're seeing this happen to you and you cannot believe it. It's setting you off. Maybe it's something that you don't feel at work every day and you just cannot hear it from this little person in your life that you love and that you work so hard to be present for and you do so much and now you're getting pushback. So just reflect, what are my own factors in my history, in my current situation that make it challenging to stay calm during these behavior challenges? Next, think about what are the triggers in your child's behavior that really set you off the most? So for example, some people might get super triggered by that talking back. Other people may not be phased by that because they have a plan of action in their own heads or because it just doesn't have the historical meaning that it has for you. They just get really upset when their child leaves a mess. Okay, so each person's gonna have different triggers from their child's behavior. Figure out what those are so that you just know in advance, these are the things that just drive me nuts. Just that awareness of it is going to give you that pause that you need not to react in that sort of state of stress or red. And then write down a list of positive supports that you can do for yourself in order to regulate. So what are key phrases that you can say that always make you smile? What are a few images or pictures that you can put in your mind that always remind you of this beautiful, loving relationship that is just having a moment? You know, maybe it's a picture of your child when they were six months old and they were giggling or you're imagining their big juicy cheeks. So whatever that picture is, try to imagine that and write it down. There might be a song that gives you comfort, the chorus of a song. If you always just go to, I will survive, the chorus of I will survive, because it just gives you a smile like, I got this, I can do this. Whatever it is, put it on your list. So all of this is a way for you to consciously and intentionally sit down and write out the things that trigger you because they're part of your history or current experience, the things in your child's behavior that are triggering for you and most likely to get a negative response. And finally, the things that you know that can give you that space between reacting and responding, whether it's a phrase, a picture in your mind, a song, a chorus of a song, or a mindful breath, you know, a deep breath in, count for four, hold for six, out for eight, anything that you want, whatever it is, make that list. So now you have that consciousness and now you will be more equipped to handle those moments when you feel set off. Remember, when you can regulate yourself, you raise children who are better equipped to regulate their own emotions. It takes time. It takes their entire childhood to get there. But that capacity for you to manage your own emotions and your own response is going to not only help you feel better about your parenting, because then you don't have to go into the shame spiral of what happens when you overreacted or think you overreacted, but you also have modeled for kids that even when you're set off and even when things are really disturbing, 
you act in ways that help you move forward, connect, and reach your goals. Because ultimately, self-regulation is not just about managing your emotions in a way that can help you exist in the world, but it also is about managing your emotions so that you can have your goals met. Now we're going to take a little bit of a break so that I can tell you about my wonderful sponsor, Once Upon a Farm. And then we're going to talk about imaginary friends and Legos. Today's episode, I am proud to say, is sponsored by my friends at Once Upon a Farm. Once Upon a Farm is the leading baby food and kids snack company offering organic cold-pressed fruit and veggie blends, dairy-free smoothies, overnight oats, meals, and more. I love it so much. I cannot believe that I didn't have access to this when I had little kids and babies. And now we can still enjoy some delicious snacks and smoothies, but really Once Upon a Farm products are incredibly made with whole organic farm fresh ingredients and no added sugars, concentrates, or anything artificial. And their new immunity blends are made with nutrition-packed fruits and veggies like elderberry and dragon fruit and added probiotics to help support your little ones for the chilly season or any reason. And plus, they are delicious. You can actually also squeeze them into an ice cube tray and have them as delicious snacks. That's what we do in this house. Immunity blends are clean label projects certified, meaning they've been third-party tested for over 400 environmental and industrial toxins, including heavy metals. And their subscription offering is fully customizable. So you can pick and choose from their wide variety of blends or meals and switch it up before every delivery. From farm to the fridge, convenience without compromise. This company is made so beautifully. The products are incredible. They are healthy. You can trust them. And there is so little we have control over in this world. We can control what choices we make in the food that we bring into our home. And you can trust Once Upon a Farm to make sure that it is packed with nutrients, not garbage and toxins. Not only that, but let's just acknowledge that every second saved is a godsend right now. So the fact that you can figure out a customized way to subscribe so that your little ones always have healthy food on hand is just so relaxing. Get started today and enjoy an additional 30% off your first subscription order. Use the code HUMANS at onceuponafarmorganics.com. That's onceuponafarmorganics.com. Here's a fun one. Hi, Dr. Aliza. I really loved playing with Legos when I was a kid and my child isn't interested. Is there any way for me to help them get excited about Legos? Okay. I think this is a fun one because it's totally natural that you want your kids to enjoy the things that you enjoy. It's a way to bond. There's no way to force a child to be interested in what you're interested in. And it is, of course, easier to help kids get excited about playing when you're playing with things that they are attending to, that they are curious about. So rather than force them to play with something, just get some Legos and play with them yourself. So sit on the floor, make sure there are no choking hazards around if you have kids under three, put down the Legos and start building. And you can sort of do parallel play while your child is playing with something else. But if you don't 
force them and you just sort of are at eye level. So you're on the ground. The materials are available to your child. There are no phones. There's no distractions. There's just you and the Legos and your child and whatever they're playing with. Chances are they will sort of scooch over to you and then you don't have to say anything. You can just kind of offer them some of the Legos, see if they're doing it and try not to force them to do it in a particular way. So rather than starting, for example, with a Lego set that is trying to create a rocket ship, you want to just have open-ended Legos where you're just building things that you are interested in building and they're not sort of step-by-step guides. That comes way later. But for younger children, it's just about engaging in the experience of putting the Legos together. Now, once they've engaged with you and you've found a way to have common ground to bond over the Legos, they'll be more likely to join you the next time. But if it doesn't work the first time, that doesn't mean that every Saturday you don't, you can like sit down on the ground with your Legos and mind your own business. And eventually your child will be very likely to come over and join you. And one other thing, if you're trying to engage a child in play and they just don't seem interested, try to add something that would interest them. For example, if you want them to play with Legos, but they love playing with dolls, there's no rule that you can't have the dolls playing with the Legos or include them or build a dollhouse around the dolls. So there are ways to incorporate different materials into your Lego building so that it's not just straight Legos. Not all kids are going to be interested in that. But if you find a way to meet in the middle and include other materials in the Lego play, they'll be much more interested. Okay. So here's a question about imaginary friends. Hi, I'd like to get your opinion on imaginary friends. I have a four-year-old and an 18-month-old baby girl. My son has an imaginary friend named Margot. His stories about Margot are becoming more elaborate and frequent. We've recently started to talk about how we don't see Margot and he's engaging in make-believe. He gets frustrated with this and says, I know mom, stop saying that. I don't want to bother him, but I really don't want him to get made fun of at school for telling tall tales about an imaginary person. Okay, this is so common and really interesting how uncomfortable we get with imaginary friends. Now, if you can believe it, by age seven, there are some studies that suggest that up to 60%, maybe even more of kids will have had an imaginary friend experience. So rest assured, it is super typical for younger children. And it's a wonderful way for them to work out how the world works and think about rules and think about emotions and try to understand the perspective of others. It also helps them communicate about things they may not otherwise feel comfortable communicating about. If you remember back about a year ago, I had Professor Stephanie Carlson on, who is a professor at University of Minnesota and She is one of the preeminent scholars in executive function skills. She's done tremendous work on studying imaginary friends. And the presence of imaginary friends is not a cause for concern. It just feels incredibly uncomfortable. Something to remember is that imaginary friends are often actually a part of developing social intelligence, not a deterrent to developing social intelligence. So if a child is 
capable of dreaming up this friend, Margot. That means your child is capable of understanding other people's beliefs and interests. And it's actually a huge step toward developing what is called theory of mind. Understanding that someone else can want something different from you, can think or imagine something from a different perspective, can have capacities or skills that are different from you. And that skill set we know emerges around four or five years old. And so imaginary play and imaginary friends are a huge part of developing that skill. And there's some association between imaginary friends and giftedness. So that's another thing to just keep in mind. And really research suggests that kids who are more likely to have imaginary friends grow up to be more creative adults. So there's lots of benefits to imaginary friends and they really can help kids fulfill the psychological need of becoming more autonomous and understanding others and being empathetic and becoming competent. So don't worry as much about social behavior in school because unless you're getting feedback from preschool teachers that it's prohibiting them from hanging out with their friends, it's really not a problem. And in fact, they do tend to grow out of it over the next year or two or three. And you don't need to correct them and say, you don't need to say like, Margot's not real. You know that, right? You can even play along. You can invite Margot to dinner. It's all part of typical development unless it really interferes with day-to-day functioning. Okay. And one more question from a developmental and secure attachment perspective, what is the optimum age to put a child in daycare? I work for myself and I'm lucky enough to be able to start work whenever I want. Which childcare setting is best for most children? One-on-one care at home and nanny share with a few kids or a daycare setting. Thanks. Here's the thing. If you have the luxury of choosing, then one-on-one care at home, if you have the resources and if that feels like the way for you to feel most connected and safe, that's going to be optimal. But if you find high quality daycare programs, I would even go as far as saying the high quality daycare programs are more regulated than nanny with a few kids, like a nanny share. So I might go in that direction as well. Again, it really matters what the quality is. There's tons of research on high quality daycare being beneficial, but if it is low quality, it is detrimental. So you want to make sure to get high quality care in whatever capacity you're doing it, whether it is one-on-one caregiving, nanny share, or daycare. And in terms of attachment and age, I mean, let me say this. If you are living in the United States, you do not get one-year maternity leave. I wish we did. I wish we all got our first year to be there with our kids. That is not the case. And we have children who have beautiful, secure attachments. So don't worry about that. It has not, it's not really about their attachment approach because you can listen to a number of the episodes that I've done on attachment. So alleviate the stress of thinking about attachment and try to think more about quality of interactions. And that will be a better guide for you. And the other part of this is, what do you feel most comfortable with? Because when you feel less anxious and you know and feel confident that your child is in healthy care, then you will be in a better physiological state when you drop them off and in a better physiological state when you pick them up. 